Father, we rejoice this morning for that love that led Jesus Christ to Calvary. To come in the form of man, to be humble to the point of death, even the death on a cross. For us. For our sin. For the penalty that we deserve. Father, we rejoice in the salvation that is now ours in Christ. We rejoice that we are not the people of a dead king, but the people of a risen king. That we can gather this morning here as the church. That we can stand on the solid foundation of the word of God. That we can have a sure faith for our God is faithful. And we can worship through giving, through singing, and through the word. And now as we turn our attention to the word of God, we pray that your spirit would work through your word for your glory. That you would take your word and you would challenge each and every one of us. That you would convict us. That you would remind us. That you would encourage us. That you would challenge us. That you would change us. That we would leave different than we came. That you would be glorified and lifted up in this time. Give me boldness to proclaim the truth of the word of God with clarity. Remove distractions. May all this be for the glory of God alone. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I invite you to join me in John 6, John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. Have you ever jumped to wrong conclusions? I've done that many times. And a lot of times, the, the information you're working with that gets you to those wrong conclusions isn't all wrong. You start off with a little bit of truth and a lot of speculation, and that leads, many times, to radically wrong conclusions. And yet we all jump there, don't we? All you have to do is get on social media to see people jumping to wrong conclusions every day. On social media, you see the extremes, right? There's no middle ground. You either hate everybody or you're scared to death. You're foolish. There's no middle ground. People are jumping to conclusions all around us. We, we live in a day where people just jump to conclusions. They take the smallest little truth and assume the largest things about you. we come to John 6, verses 1 to 15, we come to one of the most famous miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, and yet at the end of this miracle we see that the people that are there jump to the wrong conclusion. They take the wrong action. So as we work our way through this, we'll see big problems, bold solutions, and bad intentions. And the first thing we see is big problems. Starts out after these things. So, at the end of chapter 5, we know now so, 
that has ended and we're moving on. Depending on which feast is referenced in the beginning of John chapter 5, the end of John 5 to the beginning of John 6 is anywhere from six months to one year. So after these things, after the events of John chapter 5, after the six months to a year has gone by, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee. That helps to orient us on a map. Where are we? Well, we're in Galilee. As the book of John has progressed, we've gone back and forth between Jerusalem and Galilee. In John chapter 3, you remember Jesus and his disciples go to Jerusalem. They see Nicodemus. The end of John 3, they leave Jerusalem, Judea, and go to another part of Judea, out into the wilderness, and they're baptizing there. Then John chapter 4 finds us in Samaria, and then the end of John chapter 4, back in Cana and Galilee. In John 5, we're back in Jerusalem. And now as we come to John 6, we're back in Galilee. Back and forth. Jerusalem and Galilee. So here we are. We're in Galilee. It's been six months to a year after Jesus has stood up to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He's made this strong statement about himself, his identity, his relationship to the Father. So it's after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him. It's not surprising that Jesus has garnered a following. The works that he's been doing have been amazing, and they've been public. Both in Jerusalem and in Galilee. All over, everywhere Jesus goes, he's healing people, he's doing works. And these works are testifying to his identity as the Son of God. People are interested. People are amazed. It makes sense that they would follow him. Not only that, but his run-ins with the religious leaders have got to have given him some sort of, of, of fame. You can't tell me that people don't know. People don't tell, still talk about the time when he flipped the tables of the money changers. That people don't still talk about that time when the religious leaders just over a year ago wanted to kill him and he stood up to him and he said that I am the son of God. Those are public conversations, public things. People know what he has said, people know what he has done and so they follow him. In fact, it tells us why they follow him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. They've seen these signs. They've seen it over and over and over again publicly in Jerusalem and in Galilee. Jesus is doing these amazing signs. But what's interesting is that Jesus knows their heart, right? We know that from John 3. We know that from other passages that we've seen in John. Jesus knows the heart of man. Jesus knows their motivation for following him, and yet Jesus continues to do these works. Jesus knows they're following him for the wrong reasons. Jesus knows that the majority of that multitude doesn't really believe. They're just interested in seeing what he can do. 
But Jesus continues to do the works because Jesus is less concerned with the motivation that brings them to him and he's more concerned with the truth that they go away with. In fact, that's the whole point of the signs. To get attention, to announce, I am the Son of God. I am unique. Pay attention. In verse 3, we, though, have a, have a, have a break. These multitudes are following Jesus. They're crowding around Jesus and his disciples. Everywhere Jesus goes, in Jerusalem and in, in Galilee, there's people all around him. He's constantly ministering. But in verse 3, Jesus went up to the mountains, and there he sat with his disciples. Finally, it's a break. Jesus and his, his disciples are alone, they're in, this, they're in the mountains. Jesus has an opportunity to, to teach these men by themselves, to pour into them, to disciple them. This must have been a, a breath of fresh air, a break. An opportunity to, to just rest, to recuperate. I think that's important for us to note because in John chapter 5, what is the big deal? What causes all the, the conflict? It's the fact that Jesus, in their mind, is breaking the Sabbath. He's continuing to work. And Jesus says, well, I can do that because I am the Son of God. As God works, so I work. And yet, don't get the idea that Jesus was a workaholic and never rested. Because here in verse 3, we see that Jesus takes the time to get away with his disciples, and he does rest. He is a man. He needs rest like you and I do. He needs that time away. He needs to recuperate. And so here they are. They're on this mountainside. They're resting. Jesus is teaching. It's this intimate little group, Jesus and his disciples. Verse 4 helps to orient us in the year. The Passover, Feast of the Jews, was near. It's mid to end of March, most likely. So we know where we are, we're in Galilee. We know when we are, we're a year after, a year to six months after the events of chapter 5. And we're around the same time of year, the Passover. In fact, this Passover now marks one year before Jesus' crucifixion. Which is amazing to think about. In the first six chapters of John, we've covered the first over half of Jesus' ministry. And now we have through chapter 21 to cover the last year. Then, Jesus lifted up his eyes. And seeing a great multitude coming toward him. He said to Philip, where should we buy bread that these may eat? Jesus can't catch a moment of rest, can he? Mm. Many of us who have raised children, we know that feeling, right? When you got toddlers, you just want a moment of rest. You just, you can't get it. You try to lock the door, you try to get away, it's quiet for a moment, and then, Mommy! Daddy! That must be how Jesus felt. He, he finally has a moment of rest. He's sitting. He's teaching. He's resting. He's recuperating. His disciples are worn out from all this serving and following. And oh, 
finally rest. And he looks up, and here comes this multitude. But notice Jesus' response. What is your response in those moments, right? Those moments when you're tired and you finally sit down and you look up and there's a problem staring you in the face. Something you have to deal with. Notice that Jesus' first response is not to complain about his rest that is now over. It's to prepare. As he sees this crowd coming, he doesn't look to Philip and say, Oh, Philip! How about you and the disciples go distract them and I'll try to sneak away over to this hill and you guys can meet me there. That's not what he does. He says, Philip, where can we buy bread? How can we prepare to minister to these people that are coming to us? Before the people even get to him, before the problem even arises, they don't even have an opportunity yet to complain and yet Jesus sees it coming, and he is preparing. He sees the problem coming. He has that foresight. And he begins preparing. Philip was from the area, so it's a fair question. Philip would know where to go. He would know where to get bread. Where can we buy bread that these people may eat? But verse 6 gives us a kind of a peek behind the curtain. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Just as Jesus knows the heart of man, so he knows the needs of man. Jesus was prepared. It didn't catch him off guard that this people was coming. It didn't catch him off guard that they hadn't prepared and didn't have food. Jesus knew their needs, and he knew what he would do to meet those needs. He was prepared. He knew exactly what he was going to do. In fact, he's taking the situation now, and instead of panicking, he's using it as an opportunity to teach, to test his disciples. Philip, where are we going to buy bread that they may eat? Look at this huge crowd. How are we going to provide for them? Philip answers, 200 denarii worth of bread is not enough for them that everyone may have a little. 200 denarii, one denarii is approximately equal to one day's pay. So 200 would have been approximately half a year of pay. Half a year of pay is not enough to even begin to meet this need. That is a huge lump sum of money to imagine spending all at one time. The median household income in Iowa is almost $60,000. So imagine spending $30,000 to feed a group of people. That would be a big group of people. And yet Philip says, that's not even sufficient for them that they may even have a little that everyone may have a little. Not that some may have a lot, not that everyone can have a little, but that not even everyone could have a little. It's not even enough to begin to address this problem. Philip's answer here shows that there is no natural, no human solution to this problem. They find themselves here in a real predicament. There's a crowd coming, a crowd that's already worked up, Excited to see Jesus. 
And their hunger is only going to add to the tension. I've seen some of you hungry. Or should I say hangry? How are we going to meet this need? You can almost sense the panic in, in Philip's voice. We can't even begin to meet it. If we take all the money that we have, even if we had half a year's of money, we couldn't begin to meet it. What are we going to do? His mind is racing. What's interesting to me is as I read this passage, how calm Jesus comes across the whole way through. He knows exactly what he's going to do. Philip should have known better. Philip has sat at Jesus' feet now for several years. He's seen all the miracles. Philip was there just six months to a year ago when Jesus proclaimed, I I am equal to the Father. Philip should have known that as God had provided and sustained his people for 40 years in the wilderness with manna, so Jesus could do the same for this crowd. Andrew then speaks up. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Well, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? According to Mark 6.38, Jesus had instructed his disciples at this point to, to go, count, find out how much food there is. So they've gone out, Apparently, Andrew is the only one who's found anything. And Andrew comes back and he says, well, there's a kid here. Which, there's a, an issue we need to rest, take a second to think through. How is it that in a crowd this size, there's only one kid who thought to bring food? In fact, it's probably not even that kid. It's probably his mom who said, no, you're not going unless you take this lunch with you. How is that? And a crowd, this side, a crowd that we'll see in just a little bit was probably upwards of 20,000 people. How is there one kid who has food? That's it. That's all they have to work with. His disciples have gone out through the crowd and that's all they've come back with. As you read this passage, Andrew here comes out looking better than Philip because at least Andrew comes back with something, right? But I'm not convinced that Andrew here has any more faith than Philip does. I'm not convinced that Andrew passes the test and Philip fails. I'm not convinced that Andrew gets it. Mark has told us that Andrew didn't take initiative to go get this food. He's just obeying orders. And at the end, after bringing it back, Andrew expresses the exact same fear and concern as Philip. It's meaningless. What, what does it mean among so many? Philip said, we don't have enough money. Andrew said, this is all the food we have and it's nowhere close. They're both doubting. The solution has not occurred to either one of them. 
Imagine how frustrating this must have been for Jesus. Andrew and Philip, I have poured into you. I've discipled you. You of everyone should know what I can do, who I am. And neither one of you, none of you guys see that? No one, it's occurred to say, hey, Jesus, we have a problem, but hey, we know who you are. You could fix this if you wanted to. Not one of them has thought to turn to Jesus. We have big problems. A multitude with no food. Next we see a bold solution. So Jesus takes over at this point. Jesus said, make the people sit down. Doesn't tell us why Jesus had the people sit down. I imagine it's so they can all see. As they're all sitting there and Jesus takes this bread and we know what happens. And he starts tearing. And you can just picture the people in the third row counting. Oh, there's no way. And then as the, Jesus keeps tearing and the second row starts getting filled up and they start thinking, well, maybe I'll get a little bit. And then the fourth row and the fifth row and the sixth row. They're able to see. To see what Jesus is doing. There was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And about 5,000 includes just men, as Matthew 14, 21 tells us, there were women and children besides that. As I mentioned before, this is very possibly could have been a crowd upward of 20,000 people. That is a massive amount of people. The city of Altoona in 2018, had 18,000 people. The crowd following Jesus on this mountainside is bigger than the city of Altoona, Iowa, currently, at least in 2018. You start to, to see numbers like that, and you start thinking, man, how, is that even possible? How, how big are the cities around Galilee that there could be 20? thousand people. Josephus, in his work, estimates that there were around 200 cities, the smallest of the cities in Galilee, having 15,000 people. When you work through Josephus and you, and you get all the numbers together, it comes out to somewhere between two to three million people in the area. Most scholars agree that Josephus' estimate is probably a little bit high. It doesn't seem that the smallest city was really 15,000, but it is a large area. Most modern scholars would, would estimate, looking at the data that they have, somewhere between two to 300,000 people in the area. So there is plenty of people to make this 20,000 doable. And in fact, when you think about who Jesus is and the works that he has been doing publicly, it's almost amazing there's not more than 20,000 people. But there's this massive crowd and this massive problem. 
And Jesus is just so calm. Jesus takes the loaves and he gave thanks. He took the time to, to thank God for the food, for what he knew God was going to do. Which even there is a challenge to us because how many times do we forget to thank God before eating? Or how many times do we do it, but, but we're just going through the motions. We don't really mean it. We're not really thinking about it. We're not paying attention. But even Jesus, before he takes these loaves and passes them out, he gives thanks. And then he distributed them. He gives them to the disciples, and the disciples go to those who are sitting down. You can imagine the people, as I mentioned earlier, sitting there, kind of craning their necks, watching. All right, is it going to get to me? How much am I going to get? You could almost picture the disciples each time taking some, walking, and coming back and not knowing, will this be my last trip? Will I go again? Like when we pick up the chairs upstairs. Right? You try to, to time it where you're not the one getting the last stack. You try to time it where I can put this up and I don't have to make another trip. You can picture the disciples doing that, kind of, kind of going back and forth and wondering, is, is this it? Am I going again? Am I going again? And, and each time there's more. And they come back and there's more. And there's more. And there's more. Imagine how tired they would have been at the end of the day after doing this for 5,000 people. 20,000 people, I'm sorry, 5,000 men. Back and forth and likewise of the fish. And not just so everyone had a little, but as much as they wanted. Not even just until they were full, but until they were satisfied. So when they were filled, when they had been satisfied... Jesus said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Notice that Jesus has met their need in abundance, and yet he's not wasteful. In fact, later in chapter 6, in just a few verses, Jesus will say, we saw this earlier, And we will see that Jesus is the bread of life. He's not just providing physical bread, but he provides life, spiritual life. As Jesus here has provided an overabundance of sustenance, of need. So Jesus provides an overabundance of grace. He's the bread of life. He meets physical needs and spiritual needs in abundance. Jesus meets the needs of man. Now we come to the end. Bad intentions. Jesus has done this amazing work before their eyes. They've all been sitting there. They've watched him rip off piece after piece after piece. They've watched the disciples go back and forth and back and forth. And, and everyone is filled and they're, they're sitting there. And you can only imagine sitting there what thoughts are going through their mind. How amazing it would have been to see that unfold. And those men... 
when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, a miraculous sign, a miraculous work, and now they've seen that not only can Jesus heal the sick, which is why they were following him, but he has power over nature itself. He can create bread, he can sustain. In fact, Jesus here replicates and in fact exceeds a miracle that Elisha had done in 2 Kings 4, 42-44. A very similar miracle where he takes a little bit of bread and feeds over a hundred men. And here Christ has done that and yet he's done it with 20,000 and less bread to begin with. This miracle testifies to the uniqueness, the power, the greatness of Jesus Christ. And the people see that, and they get that, and they say, this is truly the prophet who's to come into the world. The prophet, it's a reference to Deuteronomy 18-15, a prophet like Moses who is to come. It's a statement that is pregnant with messianic implications. And so far, it seems encouraging. So far, it seems that this crowd, unlike everyone before them, they've actually gotten it. They've seen Christ do a miracle, and they've come to the right conclusion. Truly, this is the Son of God. Truly, this is the prophet who's, who's been promised. This is where they jump to the wrong conclusion. They take a little bit of truth. A lot of speculation, and they jump here to the wrong conclusion. They are right about Jesus' identity, but they have come to the wrong conclusions. Therefore, having come to this realization, when Jesus perceived what they were about to do, just as Jesus knew their intentions in following him, so Jesus knows how their intentions have shifted now. Jesus perceived, he saw, he knew, he understood that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. They were going to take him by force. They were going to force him to do what they wanted. They wanted to force Jesus to bend to their will. You see, they want a Christ who can give them what they want, not what they need. The Messiah to them is merely a means to a political end. They fail to see that he is so much more than that. There's no acknowledgement of sin here. There's no need for repentance. They view the Messiah through the lens of their desires, through their circumstances. They don't want to follow Jesus. They want Jesus to follow them, to bend to their will. And what's really interesting is the fact that there is some truth to their twisted fantasy. You see, Jesus is a king, and he will reign. But not yet. Because this king is also a prophet and a priest. He is both a political ruler, ruler and a savior from sin. And they fail to realize that presently their greatest need is not a ruler, ruler but a savior. 
They see the works that Jesus is doing and they jump to a conclusion. They don't listen to Jesus. They don't hear what he's really saying. All throughout his ministry, Jesus has been talking about the sins of the world and the need of a Savior. Back in John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not have to bend to the Romans. That's not what it says. That whosoever should believe in him will have everlasting life. Yes, he's a king. And yes, he will rule, but not now. Now he's a savior. And the people missed the point. So he departed again to the mountain by himself, alone. They're not ready. They've taken a little bit of truth and jumped to an entirely wrong conclusion. They're trying to force Jesus to bend him to their will. So we come to this point in John. There's a couple things that we see, and the first is this, that people are coming to the point in John where they are being forced to make decisions about Jesus. We saw it last week in John 5. The religious leaders are forced to make a decision about Jesus, and we see their opposition to him ratchet way up. He is making statements that they are no longer able to ignore. Here, the beginning of John chapter 6. This crowd cannot ignore any longer what Jesus has just done. They are forced to come to a conclusion about Jesus. And what is so sad is that they are halfway there. They see who Jesus is, but they come to the wrong conclusions about what that means. And the question here is what about you? What conclusions have you come to about Jesus? It's getting to the point in John where you can no longer go on. You can no longer turn a blind eye to who Jesus is and what he has done. As we saw last week with what Jesus said, there's only one of two possibilities. Either Jesus is a liar or he really is who he says he is. As you come this week, as you see this work that Jesus has done, as you see how the crowd reacts to him, every single person there, they're forced to come to a conclusion. This is the prophet. Look what he's done. There's no explanation. What conclusions have you come to? Have you come to a conclusion? The book of John is written that you might believe, and I would call you this morning to please believe. The evidence is overwhelming. Jesus is not a crazy person. He's not a liar. He is the Son of God who goes on in the book of John to die for your sins 
to rise again victorious, to triumph over death and sin. Won't you this morning turn to Christ and salvation? Turn in faith. Fall before him. And find mercy and grace and abundance. Secondly, I think that there's a very clear challenge for those of us who are in Christ. And the challenge is this, are you committed to your ideas about Jesus or your need for Jesus? Are you more concerned with forcing Jesus to fit your desires and your needs? To try to force God to your will or to submit to his will? The people come to the right conclusion to a point. He is the prophet who's been foretold, but they don't understand what that means, and they're not willing to understand what that means. They want to force Jesus to fit their narrative. They want him to be a political leader, to free them from the Romans, and he's not here to do that. He's here to free them from sin. Are you willing to set aside your will and submit to God's will? Don't try to force Jesus to be who you want him to be. Don't try to force him to, to, to your will. Submit to him for who he is, the Son of God, who takes away the sins of the world. 